You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. We are in the second uh, Sunday, the second sermon of a summer-long series of the refreshment of the Holy Spirit. And actually, a number of our high school students and their leaders just got back late last night completely refreshed by their time in Shasta. You need to ask Jeff Blackburn and others. He said that the Holy Spirit was doing amazing things down there. And it reminded me, again, of how the Holy Spirit often does amazing things uh, through our youth and through youth ministry. Several summers ago now, I was living in Scotland and I was serving there as a youth worker. We took 30-plus students and, and a whole uh, handful of adults and went over to Romania, actually, on a summer mission trip. We were working on a street youth shelter and also partnering up with a Baptist youth group in the evening for fellowship. In fact, we were staying at a Baptist seminary there in Bucharest. All of the girls on the team were staying in one large concrete building of dorms, and then there was a courtyard, and all of the boys on the team were in the other set of dorms. And and I, for some reason that just escapes me now, was in a room at the top of the boys' dorm. Um, And on one day in particular, it had been remarkably tough. We had run out of materials for our work on the street youth shelter. This was not uncommon at that point in history in Bucharest. And our group of Scottish youth, um, they were really pretty delightfully mixed. Quite a few of them had not grown up in the church. Several of them were in nicotine withdrawals. And they were rough enough around the edges that all of the conflicts and and frustrations of a cross-cultural experience were surfacing with a vengeance. So on this particular evening, I'm just exhausted. I mean, I'm done. I'm disheartened. I had all these expectations of, you know, seeing these lives miraculously transformed rather than seeing the worst come out in all of us. And I'm finally alone for about 30 minutes in my little room on top of the boys' dorm, and I've spent the first 15 minutes crying, when I hear on the landing below a voice yell out, Lori is going to hear about this, and a door slamming and, and footsteps coming up the stairs. And I'm just thinking, Lori does not want to hear about this. And I am more concerned with whether or not my eyes are red from crying than whatever had just happened in the boys' dorm, one floor below. And sure enough, two ticks later, one of our students, a junior who's called Stephen, is knocking on my door. Now, Stephen has this just dramatic personality. He's artistic. He's brilliant. He can sometimes be a bit difficult to get along with. And uh, the, the lads often gave him a hard time. And I knew I did not have the energy for whatever Stephen was coming upstairs with. But he surprised me. He came in, sat down in the room, and the first thing he said to me was, I'm not at all who I thought I was going to be on this trip, and I hate myself. And then he spoke about what he'd hoped for, what he'd expected, who he wanted to be, and how he was acting instead. And then right in the middle of this description, he looks at me and says, you know what, though? Something else is growing inside of me. Something's changing inside of me. And it's not coming from me, but it is me. And I like it. And it was one of the best descriptions of the Holy Spirit that I've ever heard. There's something new starting in me. 
that isn't coming from me, but is me. So we talked for a time about the Holy Spirit. We talked about God living and growing inside of Stephen despite all of his frustrations and his limitations. We talked about what it meant to to participate and cooperate with that new life growing inside of him. We prayed together, and he went back downstairs. And at some point in this whole interchange, I was no longer exhausted or angry. I didn't feel like crying. I wasn't at the end of my own resources anymore. As the Holy Spirit had worked through the exhaustion and limitation and frustration of both Stephen and I to do something new. Through Stephen's vulnerability, the Holy Spirit worked to renew me, to regenerate hope in me. So these two exhausted children of God in this Baptist seminary in Bucharest had just once again been saved by a life growing inside of them that didn't start with them, but was more them than they could be on their own. What must we do to be saved? That was the question we ended with last week in the story of Pentecost from Acts 2, in the first sermon of this series. Because, you see, we enter this summer longing for refreshment, for renewal, for a restoration of life. To use a theological term, we enter the summer seeking salvation. Longing to be saved from all that the long months of winter have demanded from us. And what we love, if we're honest, is a sort of spiritual pleasure cruise. Two weeks where we don't have to generate our own life. Someone else can cook the meals. Someone else steers the ship. Someone else plans the excursion. Someone else entertains the children. And we can sit down on the decks and relax and be regenerated, rejuvenated. And instead, the voice yells out from one floor below, the door slams, and there's footsteps on the stairs. What must we do to be saved in real time? What must we do to be saved in the 50 weeks out of the year of our spiritual journeys? See, this longing for regeneration, for a renewal of life that does not begin with us, isn't a new longing. You find it, you find it throughout the Bible. Paul found it. The Apostle Paul actually found it as he traveled. Paul was one of the earliest missionaries to the non-Jews. And he encountered this longing in people all through uh, the Mediterranean. He encountered it in, in a region called Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey. People who longed to be saved. Who, when Paul preached, heard God calling them to believe in this crucified and risen Savior entrusted and placed their faith in the God who encountered them through this story. And when Paul left them, they were running really well. They were doing great. And then he receives word that some traveling teachers have come through, very well-meaning fellow Christians who were woefully misdirected and who were directing these new believers to a different source of life and hope, a different starting place for life and hope, than the crucified and risen Messiah that Paul had preached. And so Paul writes a letter that we now call the Epistle to the Galatians. And we are going to jump in for just just five verses. It's on page 946 of the, of the black Bibles that are in your pews. 
So let's stand and read this together. We're going to start reading at chapter 3, verse 1, page 946. Reading together from Galatians 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly exhibited as crucified. The only thing I want to learn from you is this. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Having started with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing? If it really was for nothing. Well then, does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord God, thank you for the life that you give us through your Spirit and Word. And I pray that the words that I speak and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Foolish. Did you hear it? Paul says it twice. Foolish. Verses 1 and 3. Now, a fool is, I suppose, someone who leaves the path of life. The theme of the fool shows up quite a bit. In Jewish wisdom literature, in the Proverbs, the wise man and the fool, uh, the theme of the fool shows up quite a bit in Jesus' teachings, the wise man and the fool. The foolish uh, theme doesn't show up all that often in Paul. He's not so much a sage. He uses it very rarely, so to find it twice in one place should alert us that something is going on here, that we should connect these things. Now, there's another phrase that Paul also repeats twice in this passage. It's, did you receive the Spirit by believing what you heard or by doing the works of the law? He says that in 3, says it again in verse 5. Does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? And it's this contrast, the works of the law or believing what you heard, that traditionally in this passage and in Galatians, we have focused on quite a bit, and that's a good focus. I mean, it pretty much arguably started the Protestant Revolution. It's not a revolution. What was it? Reformation. Some people thought it was a revolution. But what happens is we so often focus on that couplet, works of the law and belief, that we miss the other couplet, what Paul is talking about with the two foolishness statements. And this morning, I want us to focus in on what Paul is doing with these two foolish statements. Because each one of them have to do with the cross and the spirit. Remember that these letters were written to be read aloud. So when a phrase like that gets repeated, are you so foolish, you foolish Galatians, what comes after it lets us know, oh, we should connect these things. And at each of those repetitions, what's connected is the cross of Jesus Christ, publicly exhibited before them, and the Holy Spirit of God, given to them by believing in the cross. It happens in verse 1 and verse 3. 
See, the repetition of this charge of foolishness gives us the center of Paul's concern and the center of our concern today, which is this, that we dare not separate the cross of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit of God. Remember our question, what must we do to be saved? And Paul, just like Peter, directs the Galatians, directs his listeners every time to the crucified Jesus And in that message, the Holy Spirit of the crucified Christ meets those who hear. Faith, salvation, freedom, they all begin with the crucified and risen Jesus. And as we heard in the earlier story, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are best friends. They're always together. It's the power of the Holy Spirit who raised the crucified Jesus from the dead. So if you remember only one thing this morning, remember this. The Holy Spirit of God is not general and universal to all times and places. The Holy Spirit of God is specific and inseparable from the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. The Holy Spirit of God is specific to this man, Jesus of Nazareth. The Holy Spirit of God is inseparable from the cross and resurrection. So when we speak about the Holy Spirit, we are speaking about the divine spirit who is God, revealed in the crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth. The spirit is the point of this passage. I had a conversation recently that reminded me why this matters. I moved back to uh, to Seattle about a year ago from, from Europe, and, and I'm constantly looking for a hairdresser. It's kind of my personal holy grail. <laughs> and so I have a lot of conversations with a lot of new people because I never do find one that I stay with. And um, guaranteed, the question that will come up in the one or two slot is, what do you do for a living? Usually the first question is, do you have today off? And the second, I say, well, well no, I'm, I'm a pastor, so I work on weekends. And as soon as I say I'm a pastor, well, the conversation gets super interesting. And I mean that genuinely, really interesting conversations. And the latest conversation was with a hairstylist about six weeks ago, let's call him David, who's very involved with the Center for Spiritual Living, you know, just up here out on, on Sandpoint Way. The man was an evangelist for the Center for Spiritual Living. He spoke with passion about how his involvement with them has has transformed his life. And it was a fascinating conversation, genuinely. I, I was honored that he would have it with me. And after a bit, I have to admit, though, that I felt a little bit troubled because I was enjoying this common ground of spiritual transformation. And as I sat under one of these, like, hairdryer things in a ring, I'm thinking, so what is any different between the spirit David's talking about and the one I preach? And maybe David was thinking the same thing, because as soon as I'm back in the chair, he says, so what's the difference between what you believe and what I believe? And I found myself emphasizing the common ground, but also talking about the distinction of Jesus Christ, about this crucifixion and resurrection. And speaking personally, I would have preferred to stay and simply enjoyed that common ground that David and I shared because we both testified to a divine spirit that changed our lives. And isn't that enough? Isn't it enough to simply claim that there's a divine spirit who moves in the world and changes lives that all religions share and sincere spiritual seekers can access?
I was so intrigued and so admired by his commitment and also so disturbed that I, with myself, that I went and looked up on the website. Do you know they own the spiritual, not religious, like moniker, the Center for Spiritual Living? I looked up what they believe, and it's very handy. They have a video that says what I believe, and, um, and it's very interesting to watch. But at one point, the voiceover in the video says this. What I believe does not revolve around a story. It can't be defined by a specific historical event. End of quote. And here's the rub. In Galatians, Paul says the very opposite. The Holy Spirit of God does revolve around a specific historical event. In answering the question, what must I do to be saved? I can hold common ground with David and celebrate the reality that salvation requires spiritual transformation. But you and I, we believe that while the Spirit is essential to salvation, the Spirit we believe in is inseparable from the story of Jesus Christ and the specific historical event of the cross and resurrection. See, the cross and resurrection of Jesus are the starting point for the Holy Spirit of God poured out universally on all people. Now, in Galatia, when this letter was written, the issue was also starting places. The teachers wanted to change the starting point. The specific historical event that the teachers focused on was the exodus from Egypt and the giving of the law of Sinai. This is the starting point they were taking people to. And Paul says, no, that's important. That's essential. But the starting point for faith, the starting point for the Holy Spirit and belief is the person of Jesus Christ and the specific historical event of the cross and the resurrection. Switching back to the works of the law was, was, was like if I went around putting up signs forbidding the throwing of suitcases in Romania, when the real point was what the Holy Spirit was doing in Stephen. Now, here in Seattle, at issue in our city, where the majority religion is spiritual but not religious, the audacity of this claim that God's Holy Spirit is inseparable from the story of Jesus and the event of the cross is difficult. Yes, we believe in and affirm that God is spirit, that the spirit of God has been poured out on all people, male and female, rich and poor, Jew and non-Jew, high and low. The Holy Spirit is universally available. Let's be clear on that. The Holy Spirit is universally available. But the universal Holy Spirit of God is available through this one person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the crucified and risen. How is this good news instead of dangerous religious division? Why does this matter? Well, it's good news because it is the inescapable call to vulnerability and the love of enemies. It matters because we are frail and proud and finite. And we need to be saved. Do you remember the conversation with my friend Steve and I told you about in Romania? He recognized God's spirit at work and alive and a growing in him right in the middle of his own vulnerability, of his limitations, of his failures. The Holy Spirit met Stephen at the cross, not in the perfection of his life. 
And in speaking with Stephen, the Holy Spirit regenerated life in me, not because this trip was going according to plan. It wasn't the regenerative two-week cross-cultural spiritual pleasure cruise that I had planned in Romania for myself and these Scottish students. Instead, I was regenerated right in the middle of slammed doors and exhaustion. And Lori is going to hear about this. Life, eternal life, was regenerated in the most unlikely and devastating of places. That is the good news of the cross. And it's also good news for my hairstylist, David. Because in this spiritual but not religious system of belief, the divine spirit that they believe, he believes, is living in every person. Well, it's the responsibility of that person through their own resources, through their own work, to generate and nurture and develop and release that divinity. When the good news of the cross and the resurrection is that God's Holy Spirit is given as a gift to be enjoyed and lived into. So Paul says to both the spiritual and the religious, don't be a fool. Don't look to yourself and your own resources to be saved. There is a God who supplies his Holy Spirit to you. There is a God who works miracles among you. There is a God who gives God's Holy Spirit in full supply, without measure. Receive this Spirit. Live in the power of the Spirit. Cooperate with this Spirit. So what about you? What's your particular brand of foolishness? Where do you go for regeneration, for salvation, for the hope of restoration in a job that feels like a dead end, in a marriage that is dying, in the midst of the exhaustion from raising kids, in the twilight seasons of a life well lived, at the point of loneliness or failure or pride, or uncertainty in the job market, or the fear that if you, if you let down your guard, if you relax your game, you will be found out as the imposter that you really are. What must you do to be saved? Where do you look? The Holy Spirit invites you and I to stop playing the fools. Put our eyes back on the cross of the crucified God. Ask for the power of the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead to give us life in these mortal bodies. When you go back and read Galatians on your own this week, and I hope you will, in chapter 2, you'll run across this verse from Paul. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul writes. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I live in the body, I live through faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, for some of us, the Holy Spirit returns our focus to the cross of Christ in a call to repent, to stop looking to other places as our source of life, to let go of our foolish pride, to let go of these sins that cling so closely and just continue to leech life right out of us. And for some of us, the Holy Spirit returns our focus to the cross to take hope, to receive comfort, to see the God who lives in solidarity with those who suffer, with those who die. To see the God who lives in solidarity with those who are victims of senseless and unjust violence.
If the cross is anything to go on, the dead-end job, the dying marriage, the exhaustion, the uncertainty, the loneliness, the failure, the limitations of life, these are exactly the places where the Holy Spirit goes to dance. These are the places where the Holy Spirit of resurrection life loves to stir things up. This is God's foolishness. And this is only the foolishness of verses 1 and 2. It is foolish to turn away from the crucified God for any other answer to the question of salvation. And in verses 3 to 5, it is foolish to continue the life of faith under our own power or resources. We have to continue in the power of the Holy Spirit of the crucified God. Do you remember what Paul wrote in verse 3? Are you so foolish having started with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? See, the life of faith begins with the spirit that raised the crucified Jesus from the dead. And it continues in the same spirit, not our might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And it's clear from verses 4 and 5 that Paul intends that this Holy Spirit is continuing to actively live and direct and provide and generate life in us. Verse 4 asks, did you experience so much for nothing? Takes the Galatians back to where they began. Did you somehow get the idea that a faith which begins in the place of vulnerability and a need for salvation is now to be lived out in self-reliance and self-sufficiency? Where did you get the idea that the faith that begins in vulnerability and a need for salvation is meant to be lived out in self-reliance and self-sufficiency? Don't be foolish, Paul says. Faith is a living relationship with a living God who wants us to dance, who wants to live in us, who so passionately and persistently desire to live with us that he humbled himself to become a child of his own creation. And God did not humble himself into the womb of Mary and walk the ground of Palestine and suffer the cross and descend to the dead and rise in the grave in order to exist at arm's length from you. God intends to live in you and with you in his power. You see that in verse 5. Notice there's a tense change in verse 5. Did you see it? Well then, does God supply you with the Spirit? Present tense. God who is supplying the Spirit to you. It's not as if you were given a gallon of the Holy Spirit when you converted to faith and now you need to take those little tiny sips every Sunday to make it through because you better ration this. The power of God's Spirit is unlimited. So remember this this week. Remember that Jesus' life was not self-generated. Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit. His daily life was under the power of the Holy Spirit. He relied and lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus' eternal life was not self-generated. Jesus depended on the Holy Spirit to raise him from the grave, to ascend into heaven. Your physical and spiritual life, brothers and sisters, is not self-generated. And your eternal life will not be self-generated. So turn around. Rely on the Holy Spirit. Receive this life. No more foolishness. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God Almighty, that you were willing to humble yourself and become human. Thank you that you desire to live in us and with us, and please forgive us. Forgive us for looking any place except your cross and resurrection.
Forgive us for being so self-reliant. Forgive us for expecting others to be so self-sufficient. Lord Jesus, pour out your Holy Spirit in us. Forgive us, fill us, revive us. Give us a passion to follow you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's continue to seek the Holy Spirit together as we stand. And and we're going to say together a litany that is found in your bulletin. It's also in the hymnal um, if the print is easier for you. It's, It's page 288 in the red hymnal. It's also in your bulletin. Why don't you stand and I'll lead us in this litany together. O living God, you come and make our souls temples of your spirit. Grant us all the fruits of your Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodwill, and faithfulness. May your Holy Spirit speak by the voice of your servants, here and everywhere as they announce your gospel. Send your Holy Spirit, the Comforter, to all who face adversity or no human abandonment. Build up a true community among nations through the power of your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, Lord and source of life, giver of the seven gifts. Spirit of wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and strength. Spirit of knowledge and devotion, spirit of obedience to the Lord. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.